This morning, uh, Daniel gave us a sneak peek of Psalm 19, and we are going to continue uh, our study on Psalm 19 tonight. Uh, Tonight's song is going to be to the tune, uh, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And at this time, I invite you to stand as we sing Psalm 19 together. The skies above So good. We, we did. We started Psalm 19 this morning. We looked at the, <clears throat> the reflection that David had, his spiritual reflection. Declare me 
innocent from hidden faults? Who can discern his wrongs? Keep me from presumptuous sins. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great sin. It's a meditation. It's a reflection at the end of a meditation. There was a meditation that was preliminary to that. Something brought David to saying, I I don't want to be at fault. I don't want to be in sin. Something he'd been listening to, something he'd been looking at, led him to that great reflection. So let's get right into the psalm. And you see up there, ears to hear both of God's revelations. I wonder what you think those might be. And I don't mean the New Testament and the Old Testament. That was a single revelation in over a very, very long period of time. There's another revelation, and I want to look at this together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Notice, the heavens declare the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, the heavens, they are saying something. He, and he keeps making this point. The heavens declare the glory of, of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, you look up in the sky. Day to day, what does it do? It pours out speech and then night to night. So it's not just the starry sky, it's also the blue sky. It's not just the aurora borealis, it's the gorgeous sunset that we get to see here in West Texas, and it reveals knowledge. Something's being declared, something is being proclaimed, speech is being poured out, knowledge is being administered, we're coming to know something, and what is it that's speaking? The heavens. The heavens are saying something. The sky is constantly saying something. And so he says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Okay? If, if I say something from here, did, did y'all hear it? Y'all heard it. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. He just said they're saying something. These, they're always saying something. The skies above are saying something constantly. And then he says everybody hears it. Everyone in the world hears it, not just Christians. Sometimes Christians are the ones who hear it the very least. We'll talk about that in a minute. Their voice. Whose voice? Their voice. Well, that goes back. There is plural. What does it go back to? The heavens. Somebody said, there's an English teacher that I spoke to the other day. I love grammar. I know that's a weird thing to be passionate about, but I love it. There was an English teacher who, who got with me after one of my lessons, and she said, I, I really love what you do, but I'd really like it if we could do some more sentence diagramming. And we're not going to get into that. Uh, we're, we're not, I know that that would probably not land very well, but I want you to see when he says their voice goes out, what voice? Well, the voice of the heavens. 
the voice of the skies, the voice of the stars, the voice of the sun and the moon, their voice. It's, it's a plural voice, and it's all saying the same thing, and everybody is hearing it. Everybody in the world is hearing it. And their words, see, he keeps, he keeps talking about that. Their words, let me, their speech, their voice, speech, their words go to the end of the world. In them, in the skies, he has set a tent for the sun. So, so the sun is within this. And he goes on and he says that the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. What's the image there? The image is of a man who was married last night and he comes out the next morning. He's, he's happy. He, he, he is filled with joy. He's, he's a man. He's excited. And he says, this is the sun. It, came out, it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man. And notice what he says that it do, does. It runs its course with joy. Every single day, you see it, it rises in the east and it sets in the west. Now, again, which one? Where, where's east in here? Somebody want to point? Okay, it rises over here. It sets over there. Something about buildings. I'm always turned around inside buildings. I, can, I got it together when I'm outside. Inside, I'm always turned around. Okay, so it rises in the east. It sets in the west. That's its course. It does this every day. There's something glorious about it. There's something glorious about seeing it come up. And something glorious about seeing it come down. This is what it is. It's, it's rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. It heats us. It gives us warmth. Think about what this world would be if we didn't have the sun. It gives us warmth. We're studying some of these other planets right now. They don't get warmth. Look at the temperatures on Mars. Look at, the, the, look at how cold it can get. I don't want to go live there. It gives heat here. It gives warmth here. This is a good thing. This is a gracious thing. This is a thing of God. And I want you to see that, that so what is it that's God's first revelation here? It's his creation. Now, all through the Bible, God, here it's a reflection on the stars, but it's really the totality of the creation of God, and it's always speaking. The mountains speak. The trees speak. The birds speak. The little birds that every day are finding worms, and they're flourishing, and they're speaking to one another, and they're singing. They speak. It's all speaking. Creation is speaking, and it's always saying something and the things that it's saying is about God. And then there's an immediate transition from that into what we give all of our attention to. For good reason, but we shouldn't give all of our attention. We should give some of our attention to this other revelation. Because the latter revelation was not, uh, does not cut out the former one. The Bible doesn't make creation's voice irrelevant. Creation from the moment that God said, let there be light, from the moment that God formed the earth, it's been saying things about God. And we need to listen to it. We need to hear it. But he makes this immediate transition to where now he's talking about the law of the Lord. 
the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. And he says all of these things, they're perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, which which the only way you get this, this is wisdom. Solomon says this is wisdom. This is the beginning of wisdom, is to fear God, this great God who could make everything. And he says it's clean. It's clean, enduring forever. To fear the Lord is a purifying thing. To have fear of the Lord is one of the great ways to purify the soul. Because God sees me and knows me at all times and in all places. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous together. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. So these things are richer and more valuable than the things in creation, and yet the things in creation are speaking, and we need to hear them as well. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by them, that is plural, pointing back to the rules and pointing back to the precepts and the commandment and law and the testimony. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. There are two revelations, namely the natural revelation and the special revelation. That is all of creation as well as the Bible. And these two are in perfect harmony. The things of the Bible are never going to contradict what we uncover and what we discover and what we find in creation. And the things that we know in creation are never going to undermine. They're never going to contradict. contradict. They're never going to go against the words, the special words, the written words that God has given. Why? Because there is a singular mind behind the both of them. There was a singular mind. It was God who said, let there be light, and there was light. It did it. It was God who said, let there be fish and let there be birds, and those things happened. And it was the same God, the same unified mind that brought forth Genesis all the way to Revelation. The psalmist is saying, I spend time reflecting on both of them. And what I'm saying is we need to be a people who reflect on both of them. What happens when you reflect on creation but you do not reflect on the special revelation. Ultimately, what happens is you end up worshiping the creation. And this has happened all through history. Anthropologists have yet to uncover a place where there wasn't a religion, where there wasn't an object of worship. But where the people don't have the Bible, where the people don't have the special revelation of God, they ultimately end up worshiping creatures. There's a longing in the heart of man. There's something deep that knows I'm to be worshipful. I'm longing for something. And yet, when they don't have the special revelation, they find alligators and crocodiles and whales and sharks and the sun and things like these to worship. And myths are formed. But when you, when, you, when you reject the Bible and you give all of your attention to creation, you end up worshiping creation. And Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 1. I don't have it on the screen, but let me just read this. He says, now, now listen to this. I have always believed, actually not always, not until I really started thinking of, of this passage, but that there's no, 
there's no such thing as a, as a legitimate atheist. There are people who think themselves atheists, there are, but, but there was something that they had to do, there was a suppressing that had to happen for them to get to a point where they actually believed that. Because he says this, what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. God has shown it to them. This is not speaking of God, of Christians or Jews. This is speaking of the whole world. The, the, the ones that he, he just said, they're rejecting, they're rejecting God. And he says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. They're invisible. The attributes of God are invisible, and yet they're inexcusably perceivable. This is Paul's argument. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were, were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonor, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The psalmist says, and he said this from the beginning of this psalm, the heavens are always saying something. What did he say that they're saying? What are they declaring? There are two things. There's actually three. One of them is by implication. Two are expressly given. One of them is the glory of God. The other is the handiwork of God or the design of God. God's design. God made it this way and he, and he didn't make it that way. And you can say all day long that, you know, you, you can try to fit a square peg into a round hole, but it it won't happen. You can try to go against creation, but creation always speaks. It's always consistent with the voice of God. So three things are said by creation. Number one, that there is a God. Number one, that there's a God. This is one of the things that it says. And then it, it, it's not just that there's a God, but it says that, it, that God is glorious. God is good. God didn't make the world black and white. He didn't make it tasteless. He didn't make it without heat. He didn't make it uh, cold to where we could not find any warmth. And it's not just speaking of God's glory, but it's speaking of his handiwork, which is his design. It's, it's saying things. And so my, my question is, do you listen to the voice of creation? Are you listening to the voice of creation? A couple of reflections that I've had is that God is good, the other night, we, every time there's a sunset, my family and I, I, we either Judah will see it and he'll say, Mom and Dad, come see the sunset, or Miranda will see it, and we always go out, and the thing we always say is what, is, what is creation saying? What is the sky saying? Who made that? Who painted that? The, but the day is going out. We're, we're, we're about to finish the day. We're, we're closing up the day. And have you ever thought about how often God closes the day with these amazing, glorious paintings, like, like watercolored skies, you just go out there. That was a Jason Aldean quote. I stole it from him, but uh, 
those, those who know the song will, will, will pick up on that, but he, he closes out the day that way. It's, it's good, and, and it's real art, and it's beautiful. There, there are some very ugly things that we call art, but, but God, God has beauty. God has, there's design here, and God has made something, and he's good. He enjoys beauty even, which is why communism never forms anything other than gray buildings in a block shape, and they can do nothing else. And why Kim Jong-un will give like four hairstyles that you can go get from the barber and none of them are very good. God is, God, God weaves together a tapestry with differences between men and women and animals and birds and fish and there's colors and there's color schemes and things that fit together and that are complementary and it's very, very beautiful. God is an artist, and the works of God are so self-evidently beautiful that the people who deny God are usually the ones who give the greatest attention to the creation. And I think the reason why is that God is the truly glorious one, but the creation is always telling of God's glory. So if they will not be filled with the glory of God, they'll be filled with the thing which is speaking about the glory of God. Which is why I truly believe that the hippie is a lot closer to the truth than we might have let on. And I really, I really mean that. Those who are spending time in creation, those who want to take care of creation, those who are recognizing its beauty, they're a lot closer to the truth than what we would think. We just need to help them go the extra step. Because if you look on the beauty of creation all day long and say it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful, but you never question why you prefer a sunset to a gray sky, which implies that there's some standard and some reference of good that you're based in. If you never question, you're not taking it to its logical conclusion. And the psalmist is saying, I look on these things and it brings me to God. There are philosophers today who say Jesus was a good man. He was a good man, although nothing that he ever said was actually true. It's, it's a defeating argument. He can't be good and have said things that are untrue. They, we, so many can see the goodness of Jesus, but they don't let it bring them to the truth. So many see the goodness in creation, but they don't let him bring it to the truth. And that's part of our job. And it's all around us. The evidence is all around us, and we know it in our very hearts. Nietzsche was famous for writing a, a little story called The Madman. And in it, he spoke about how we killed God. The world has killed God. He's talking about the dawn of atheism, the, you know, the destruction of religion. And the thing that he, Nietzsche denied God. He truly believed that there was no God, and yet he couldn't accept it even himself. So in The Madman, the madman is basically saying, we've done it. I, w I wish we hadn't done it. What can we do now? I want to go back. He sees what atheism brought, and he rejects what it brings without going back to say maybe, just maybe I was wrong. Maybe there is a God because all things truly point to God. This is a tool that we can use. And so what I'm saying is Christians need to learn again to listen to the voice of creation. The voice of creation, this is, <clears throat> I really believe that if we look on creation, it would actually set straight a number of the social ills that we're dealing with. It is creation. It is human biology. 
It is human anatomy that tells us so plainly that a man is made for a woman and a woman made for a man. Creation tells us this. To push against it, Paul says in Romans chapter one, is to do that which is against nature. The word that he used there in the Greek language is a word that was a common phrase. There were things according to nature and there were things against nature. And at least those people understood some things are contrary to nature. Nature teaches us that children must obey their parents. It's kind of an odd one. It does. It teaches us this. In Romans 1, when Paul said they denied the creator, worshipped the, crea- the creature, everything was subverted at the end of his long list of, of sins that came about. He said children that disobey their parents. But every tribe, every society, every civilization has known from the beginning children need to listen to parents. Because if, if you just, just think about it, it's just nature. If you tell a kid you can have anything you want to eat, what are they going to choose? Skittles. That's what they're going to pick. They're, they're going to pick that constantly. And yet, everyone knows, no, the parent has to give direction. We live in a, we live in a time right now where, where children can say anything, they can do anything, and, we, and, and soft parenting, which is brought about by a lot of modern psychology, has said, hey, just kind of let them do what they want to do. Look at the things that come from it. There's a reason they can't vote. There's a reason they can't drive There's a reason they don't set their bedtime. Why? All of nature teaches us. Children, there's a command, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Nature teaches us that monogamy is preferred to free love. We know what came from the 60s and 70s. Nature teaches us that our men should be on the front lines and not our women. Nature teaches us that just look at the frame, look at the frame. Which one is built like a tank and which one is delicate and glorious? There are distinctions. Nature teaches us. See, what, what happens when we, when, we only, when we only look at the Bible and we don't look at nature, in many churches across this nation right now, they're, not, they're only looking at the Bible and because they're not paying attention to nature which tells us things, all kinds of things, all kinds of things through, all kinds of heresies through, the, through history has been brought out. Gnosticism being one of them. The denial of the goodness of the body. Asceticism being one of them. The denial of pleasure. And then they brought about the idea that God doesn't want you to have pleasure. The most religious people are the ones that, that hurt themselves and, and experience the least pleasure, which isn't true. God is a God who wants to give us good things. Egalitarianism in modern times. Egalitarianism is the idea that there is really no difference between men and women except for our biological makeup. And this simply isn't true. We're wired differently. We think differently. Y'all who've raised both boys and girls know that from the very start, they are different. Doesn't nature teach us these things? And this is true even in the church. So um, what I'm saying is nature is a voice we need to hear and the world needs to hear it, and we need to point them to these truths. Now, I, I want to finish by uh, reading to you this. It's just an absolutely glorious, it's a small depiction of one part of creation, namely rain. 
And I want to leave it with you because this was something that really filled me as I think about our God and his goodness. And just, these are the kinds of things I'm going to use when I'm dealing with atheists, when I'm dealing with people who don't believe in God. Show them how, how kind this creation can be to us. Job said, But as for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number, so he does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. What, what, what would you think was the thing that Job was about to now say? He does great unsearchable things, and then he says he gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. Is that a great and unsearchable thing in your mind? If you paused for a moment like this author who I'm about to read did, it would be a great and unsearchable thing. John Piper says this, Is rain a great and unsearchable wonder wrought by God? Picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East, far away from any lake or stream. A few wells keep the family and animals supplied with water, but if the crops are to grow and the family is to be fed from month to month, water has to come on the fields from another source. From where? Well, the sky. The sky? Water will come out of the clear blue sky? Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles and then be poured out from the sky onto the fields. Carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 27,878,400 cubic feet of water, which is 206,300,160 gallons, which is 1,650,501,280 pounds of water. That's heavy. So how does it get up in the sky and stay up there if it's so heavy? Well, it gets up there by evaporation. Really? That's a nice word. What's it mean? It means that the water sort of stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down. I see. Then how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? The water starts to become water again by gathering around little dust particles between 0.00001 and 0.0001 centimeters wide. That's small. What about the salt? Salt? Yes, the Mediterranean Sea is salt water. That would kill the crops. What about the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. Oh, so the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea and takes out the salt and then carries it for 300 miles and then dumps it on the farm? Well, it doesn't dump it. If it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So the sky dribbles the billion pounds of water down in little drops, and they have to be big enough to fall for one mile or so without evaporating, and small enough to keep from crushing the wheat stalks. How do all these microscopic specks of water that weigh a billion pounds get heavy enough to fall, if that's the way to ask the question? Well, it's called coalescence. What's that? It means the specks of water start bumping into each other and join up and get bigger, and when they are big enough, they fall. Just like that? Well, not exactly, because they would just bounce off each other instead of joining up if there were no electric field present. What? Never mind. Take my word for it. I think instead, I will just take Job's word for it. I still don't see why drops ever get to the ground, because if they start falling as soon as they're heavier than the the air, they would be too small not to evaporate on the way down. But if they wait to come down, what holds them up till they're, big, till they're big enough not to evaporate? Yes, I'm sure there's a name for that too, but I'm satisfied now that by any name, this is a great and unsearchable thing that God has done. I think I should be thankful, lots more thankful than I am. I know that was a long reading, but that was a good, a good 
reflection on the creation of God. We have a good God. Look out into the world and see the beautiful creation that he's made and let it fill you. And then go forth with a smile and tell your neighbor about Jesus. Let's stand and sing. Oh, it's God.